You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you who are new to our church or new to tuning in to The Peak, welcome to what is a really, really significant week here in the life of not just our church, but the capital C church, the church writ large. You see, friends, this week, as we talked about a couple moments ago, marks the beginning of the season of Lent. And Lent is a season here in the life of our church where we remember That 40 days prior to Jesus' earthly ministry, he was out in the wilderness. He was spending time in prayer, in deep, deep introspection. And so what we do is every sort of every sort of chapter, every every year around this chapter of the year, we spend the 40 days in preparation for Easter doing the same thing. We spend time in prayer. We spend time doing a spiritual inventory of sorts. This year, here at the peak, we're going to spend a lot of time during the season of Lent asking the question of, why? Why am I the way that I am? Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I think the way in which I think? In the words of the great theologian Michael Scott, why are you the way that you are? You see, friends, the whole purpose of this sermon series is to uncover answers to that question because what we believe is that at the core, at the core of answers to those questions, we're going to find some answers as to who God made us to be, why God made us the way that God made us. I hope that you walk away from the season of Lent this year and it's a game changer for you. I hope you walk away from this season with a deeper seeing, a deeper awareness of not only who God's created you to be, but why, why you're here. One of the tools that we're going to use to help unearth and discover answers to that question of why is called the Enneagram. So, quick show of hands, quick show of hands. How many of you, raise your hand if you are familiar with the Enneagram. Okay. Now, raise your hands if you are not familiar with the Enneagram. Raise your hands now if you're scared of the Enneagram because it feels like a cult. Yeah, mm-hmm. A couple weeks ago, I told someone that I was launching a sermon series on the Enneagram, and immediately they were like, oh my gosh, what's your type? What's your triad? Where do you go in comfort? Where do you go in stress? What's your wing? Are you a social, or are you a sexual, or are you a self-preservation? I was like, whoa, you need a hobby. <laughs> you need a hobby. It can be a little culty, and so... One of the things I want to say right here at the jump is that the goal of this sermon series is actually not to convert you to the Enneagram. It's not to convert you to use the Enneagram. But instead, what it is, is it's a case. I think there's a strong case to be made that if not this tool, you need a tool for figuring out the answers to the why question. Why? you and I tick the way that we do. And the reason for which is actually really clear. If you don't, if you go the rest of your life and you're like, no, I'm just not going to do that inner work. I'm not going to do that introspective stuff. What happens is, is this, that self-awareness will almost always lead to a life 
where you experience a deep, deep lack of fulfillment. So you won't really understand, again, what you're on this earth to do, your purpose in this earth, because you've never done the work of figuring out what exists inside of there. You'll be largely relationally unavailable because you'll be completely unaware of how you show up in the world and what other people need from you in the world and what it means to establish deep, uh, lasting connection. And friends, why we're having this conversation in church. The reason why this conversation matters to folks like you, folks like me, is because what I've found to be true is that if you go throughout your life completely self-unaware, you will have a very stunted theological imagination. You will have a very small understanding of God. I like to say it this way, you won't even know you're doing it, but you'll turn God into your image rather than allowing God to make you into his. And so the opposite is also true. The more aware we become of who we are and our DNA and how we tick and our hardwiring, we'll experience a deep sense of purpose in our lives. We'll start to understand where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be about. You'll start to establish deep, meaningful connections with other people because you'll begin to understand how you're coming across and what it is that is required in order to find intimacy and deep, deep connection and then finally, you will have an ever-expanding understanding of God. Each and every week, you come here, each and every week, you dig into your spiritual life, you will walk away with a, a deeper, richer, a bigger picture of God than you could ever imagine. Augustine used to say this, he used to say that to know thyself is to know thy God. If you get to know yourself, you will find things out about God that you did not know before. In fact, that's also what the Apostle Paul is trying to do with the early church here in our passage for today. So if you have your Bibles with you or you've got a smart device handy and you want to track along with us, or again, if you're watching this online, you want to go ahead and hit pause and uh, locate a Bible to do so, go ahead and do that now. Today we're going to be camped out in Ephesians chapter 2. Specifically, I want to hone in uh, on verse 10. So I'll come to that in just a moment. But here in this uh, chapter, what we get is a letter. It's a letter written by Paul to an early church in Ephesus, and he's teaching them the core tenets of the Christian faith. And in verse 10, he says something really, really important. He's teaching them something really, really, really important about their identity. Again, the whole purpose of this sermon series. He's teaching them about the why you and I were made, right? He says this. He says, for you, we, all of us, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I want to break this apart a little bit because this is my, actually my, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. So my favorite passages in all of Scripture for two reasons, two reasons. Number one, I love, go back to the why, Paul is super clear why we were created, that we were created to do good works that God's preparing in advance for us to do. And I need this reminder, I don't know about you, but I need this reminder because I tend to show up in the world and just think all the good works were my idea. I just walk around going, wow, that was really generous of me. Like, that was very sweet of me to care for this person and go out of my way. And Jesus is over there is like, bro, I prepared that meeting three weeks ago. I just needed you not to fumble it. That's all. I was talking during the first service, one of our uh, church folks, uh, they have this line where they say, I've got a calendar, I've got a schedule, but God always puts appointments on there that I did not pre-approve. And I love that. I love that. That's living into this, that I'm always making room in my life that God may have an appointment for me that I didn't anticipate, didn't see coming. 
And the second reason why I love this passage so much, I love this verse so much, is because of how it starts, for you are God's handiwork. Some of you are more familiar with another translation that says, you are God's masterpiece. I love that. You are God's masterpiece. And some of you came into church today, or you're tuning into church today, and you need to hear that, don't you? You need to be reminded of that today. Some of you, maybe you're coming out of a week of work where your boss was super critical with you, or maybe this has been the story of your freaking life. And everybody's been saying, oh, I just wish you were more like so-and-so, or oh, they, they, I don't like this part of who you are, oh, and they say things about you. They've, you've almost been taught, you've been trained to believe that there are core parts of who you are that are, dare I say, wrong. And you need to hear the good news that, friends, you are God's masterpiece. And if other people can't appreciate that, their beef ain't with you. It's with the architect himself. Amen? It's with the engineer himself. I feel like I'm on Oprah right now. If ain't nobody, if that man can't appreciate you, honey, then you just move on. Like, come on, we're going to just go find somebody who does love you, sees the value, sees the worth in you. Come on. Seize. The scripture also says that all of us, every single one of us, were, were fearfully and wonderfully made, to quote the Psalms. And this is where the Enneagram comes in. Because you see, friends, one of the things that the Enneagram does is it's a tool for helping you discover who that person is. Who is that masterpiece that lies at the core of your being? I love this because I feel like if we were having conversations with uh, persons and leaders in the Enneagram, they, how they would interpret Ephesians chapter 2 is they would say, yes, you are God's masterpiece, and God's masterpiece comes in nine templates. Nine templates. It's like going to Chick-fil-A. you got nine combo options on the screen, and you can pick one of those, okay? So when God created you, God created a beautiful masterpiece, and it came in one of nine sort of versions. And we're going to walk through them now very quickly. We're going to walk through them now, and I want to just advise you. As you're walking through these and hearing these, you're going to go, you're going to get confused. If you haven't done the assessment, you're going to get confused because you're going to go, oh, I think I'm this. Oh, crap. No, I'm this. Oh, crap. Again, that's because all of these are in you. All of these are in you. The question is, who is the core you? At the core, the basic default template, who is that you? And again, nine options. Here we go. According to the Neogram, some of us out there, we are type ones, the reformers. Any ones in the house? Reformers. Uh, we're going to do this. I'm going to go through each type. I'm going to tell you their core desire and their core fear. Core desire, core fear, okay? So for ones, the reason why they're reformers uh, is because they desire order. They want things, they want nice, neat categories. They want right, they want wrong. They want it to be very, very clear what you do and what you don't do. And the reason for which is because they're afraid of chaos. They're afraid of a chaotic, disordered world, a disordered existence. Type two, some of you are helpers. Helpers, your core desire is usefulness. Any twos here? Um, Amanda, associate pastor. Um, your core desire is usefulness. Usefulness. You're a helper because you want to be needed. You want to be helpful. You want to be a servant. You want to help meet other people's needs. And the reason for which, one of the reasons for which, is because your core fear is to be unwanted, that you're not needed or seen any value in having you around anymore. Type three is the achiever. Some of you, uh, your core desire is success. It is achieving. It is making goals and then reaching those goals. It is movement. It is progress. 
And the reason for which is because at the core, you suffer from a deep fear of worthlessness, that you reach the end of your life and you go, gosh, like I didn't do anything worthy or helpful to the world. Type fours, type fours are the individualist. Any fours, any fours, any fours? Yeah, fours typically, um, I don't know, they're not always given a good, uh, spa- a healthy space in church. I'll come to that more in a moment. But uh, for individualists, uh, the core desire is significance, significance. So they are those who, uh, they want originality. They want originality. They want you to discover your personal individual significance. They want you and I to find what is the original way in which we are supposed to show up in the world. And the reason for which is because their core fear is that they're going to be forced to adopt being someone that they're not, that they're going to walk around with no identity, no understanding of who they are at all. Type five, investigators. We got any investigators? Got any bookworms in the house? Woo, we got one. Okay, great. Wonderful. Nate, we're glad you're here. Um, Core desire for investigators is understanding. Understanding. So they make really good students. They make really good researchers. They're always asking questions. Some of you who, uh, if you're type fives and you're listening to this and you're not even sold on the Enneagram yet, it's like, "Ah, I'm going to go do some research first, right? Because you want knowledge. You want understanding. And that's because uh, on a basic sort of level, you're afraid of showing up in the world and being seen as incompetent or not knowing what you're doing or not understanding what it is you're talking about. Type six is the loyalist. Their core desire is security. So sixes, you got any sixes? Sixes, whoop, 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 got a couple. Um, Your core desire is security. So you're always seeking for uh, safety. You're seeking to protect uh, yourself and others from danger. That's because your core fear is unpredictability, showing up in a place where there's no plan and things might happen to you uh, that you didn't see. Here we go, almost done. Type seven is the enthusiast. Uh, I love the enthusiast. Uh, I read a description of an enthusiast one time that said for sevens, every day is a snow day. Every single day is a snow day. So they show up in the world. They're the life of the party. They're the funnest people to be around. I've never met a single seven I didn't like because they show up and they want to fulfill. They want to sort of, they want to experience. They want to go and do things. They have FOMO so badly. And so they're just like, let's go and have so much fun and experience life together, the richest of the fullest. And that's because their core fear is being deprived. It's being held back from abundant life. Type eight's the challenger. Got any eights? 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 Okay, got any eights? Core desire for challengers are integrity. Or core desire is uh, the sort of, um, I want to make sure that the people that I'm in a relationship with and the institutions I'm in a relationship, they don't just talk the talk, but those better walk the walk. Like, they better actually mean what they say, and they better do what they say. Uh, And I want to make sure that I'm advocating for that and fighting for that. I'm fighting for the person who's being hurt by the group or by the institution. Because, again, uh, they're afraid of living in a world that is hypocritical, where it's you put on a facade on the front, but you mean something entirely inside. And type nine, peacemakers. We got any niners? Niner niners? Niner niners? My sweet, sweet nines. (laughs) My sweet, sweet nines. Your core desire is peace and harmony. Um, If you were Miss America, world peace. I just want peace for all the world. You make really great mediators. You're really good in a conflict, also because you hate it. <laughs> you're so uncomfortable with disunity and dis, uh, just the divisiveness that you're always like, okay, well, let's all just sit together and have some coffee and talk it out. Come on, let's all be together. And so uh, we just sell our, so, okay, so we just did a quick overview. So now I'm gonna give you just a quick practical picture. So if you're like, okay, I'm still trying to figure out what this looks like in real everyday life. We celebrated Valentine's Day this week. This is how each of the nine types celebrated Valentine's Day. Ready? Here we go. Type ones, you are searching desperately for the perfect card, the perfect restaurant, and the perfect gift. You would not settle for something unless it was right. It was the right gift, the right place to go. 
Type twos, acts of service, you were just all day long doing things to make the other person's life easier, helping them, caring for them, making them feel special. Type threes, uh, you thought it would be no there'd be nothing more romantic than having a game night. Uh, and so nothing says I love you more than I'm going to beat you severely in Settlers of Catan, okay? We're gonna play it and we're gonna do it over wine, but I'm gonna make sure you know that I'm the achiever in this household, okay? So really sweet of them. Type fours, they probably went away for a while, went for a walk with their guitar. And they're like, what, what song could I write for my beloved? What song, what poem could I think about for them? Type fives, uh, you uh, investigators, uh, spent the, good, the first half of Valentine's Day researching the history of it and then sharing those little factoids at dinner that night. By the way, have you ever researched the history of Valentine's Day? They straight killed people on Valentine's Day. That's how they used to celebrate. They would bring dogs and like all this kind of stuff. And so the five is there going, sweetheart, I love you so much. I love you almost with as much passion as, well, the Roman Empire when they killed all these people. Cheers. Here we go. Cheers. This is wonderful. Okay, this is great. Type sixes, uh, you gifted someone a survival kit. You know what? You said you can never know. You never know what's going to happen. You never know. So here's a little kit in case you get stranded on a desert island. I love you. This is how I show I love, love for you. Type sevens, uh, at first they were workshopping some ideas for maybe a restaurant or something like that, and they said, forget that, we're going skydiving, okay? We're going all the way, we're going straight to the tin with it, it's going to be amazing. Type eights did not celebrate it because they're challengers, and so they're like, this is a Hallmark holiday, this is an institutional bull, we're not doing none of that, we're staying home and living a normal life. Authenticity, authenticity. And type nines, again, once again, type you sweet, sweet niners. Mm. You spent the entire day saying, whatever you want, okay? Whatever you want, whatever you want. Where do you want to go? Whatever you want. What do you want? Whatever you want. What? And again, it's super sweet. It's also a little annoying. So like sometimes like we need you to have an opinion. Have an opinion, okay? All right? So those are the types. Those are the types. And so friends, we're, over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to dig in and you're going to get a little bit more of a depth uh, to understanding what these types are. And again, the why, why God made you this way. And I really do hope, I really hope and pray that over the course of the next several weeks, what happens to you is you begin to understand core parts of who you are and or core parts of someone really critical in your life. Some weeks you're going to come in and it's going to be personal revelations. You're going to be like, holy cow, that was like transformational for me to understand that about myself. And some weeks you're going to show up and you're going to go, that's why my boss does it that way. That's why my partner always does it this way. That's why my kids always live and act this way. It's critical that we engage tools like this, not only so we love ourselves better, but we love neighbor better. Amen? And so part of what I wanted to do today was I already did it. I wanted to give you a little bit of an overview. I want to dip our toes a little bit in the Enneagram world. And then secondly, the other thing I want to do right at the jump, right at the jump, is I want to give you some forewarning of ways in which you can and cannot use this tool, okay? The rest of today, what we're going to talk about are ways in which you should and should not use the Enneagram, okay? And so for some of you, this is, it, Enneagram, again, it's a tool. It's a tool. And so what are tools? Tools are neither good nor bad. They're just neutral. It's all how you use them. I bought an air horn earlier this week, and you can use air horns for really, really wonderful things. You can use them at swim meets to sort of indicate when to start, when to stop. You can also, 
which I plan to do, use them on your office mates before they have any idea what's happening to them, okay? It's all in how you use the tool. It's all how you use the tool. And if some of you here today, before like I can, I can even wade into the conversation, you're like, I don't know, man, I know, but it's like, it's not in the Bible, and it's not explicitly Christian, and like, so you have a lot of reservations about that kind of stuff. Let me just say to you, again, if a tool is neutral, it can be used for Christian purposes and non-Christian purposes, right? Right? I love this, that even Jesus gives us permission to use things that he didn't pre-approve for holy and sanctified purposes. There's this moment in the Gospels where Jesus is running around with his disciples, and the disciples see somebody preaching and doing things in his name, but they didn't get his permission about it. And so they get all up in arms about it, and so they run up to Jesus, and they're like, we should, like, stop them. They didn't talk to you first. They didn't get our approval first. We should stop them. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't you dare stop them. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. If this tool is not against the Lord, then it can absolutely be used for God's purposes in your life and in the world. And so again, what are some good purposes? What are some bad purposes? And I actually want to start with the bad because those are funnier. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, let's start off with bad uses, poor uses, unhealthy and unfaithful ways to leave here today and use the Enneagram in the world. Number one, you are forbidden. You are not allowed. Do not use the Enneagram to, number one, pigeonhole other people or other types. Don't use this tool to pigeonhole other people or other types. It can be really tempting when you meet someone early in your life who is a firm, specific type to then, and you have a negative experience, to project that upon every other person who resembles them for the rest of your life. In college, I was assigned a group project with a bunch of fours. I love you fours. You are wonderful, you are beautiful, you're creative, you're artistic. You, um, again, if there's something that we need to make it expressive and emotive, oh my gosh, they're amazing at that. They're not good at deadlines. <laughs> the night before the group project is due, I pull the guys together, I'm like, all right, so did you guys do your thing? And they're like, so, bro, like, we were going to, but, like, we totally fell into a jam sesh, and, like, homeboy was rocking the cajon, and we were like, we can't stop now. I was like, oh, well, I'll make sure to tell that to our professor. I'm sure they will understand. Like, we'll just sort of move on and get a good grade because we were having a jam sesh. We were caught up in the vibe. Okay, I'll share that information. We'll see how that goes. And so I had this really negative experience in college, and for a while I was super tempted. I think society, especially American society, good Lord, we're overscheduled, we're overachievers all the time. It's all about, you know, the purpose, the good. Like, it's all about doing, not being, doing. And so what I was tempted to do for a lot of years was to just to dismiss anyone who was a type four, anyone who had that sort of artistic vibe to them. I was like, yep, you're not on my team. I'm, I can't I work with you because I've got stuff to do and you're just going to slow me down. And the problem with that is pigeonholing is just fancy language for judging, isn't it? It's just fancy language for judging. And what does Jesus say? Don't you dare judge other people, or you too will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. The measure you use, that'll be the one that God uses with you. So if you don't want to go to the next life and be judged, 
based off of a simple thing you did or a label you possess, don't you dare do the same thing. Amen? So the first poor usage, the first unhealthy, unfaithful usage of the Enneagram and tools like the Enneagram, personality assessments, is to use it to pigeonhole other people. The second one is this. The second way to not use the Enneagram is to dismiss the need for personal change. Don't use the Enneagram in a way to sort of dismiss the need for you to adapt and change your behavior. Some people, uh, what they do is they engage in relationships, they engage in work, and they sort of learn about the Enneagram, and they go, well, I'm sorry that you don't like that. I'm sorry that this was inconvenient for you, but this is just who I am. And so I'm just, this, I'm a three, and I'm a four, and I'm a seven, and so sorry, this is who I am. Deal with it. And that's a load of bull, okay? Not allowed to do that. As you might have guessed, those of you who know me pretty well, uh, I am a three. I am a three. So I'm an achiever, uh, and one of the things that's so annoying about us threes is we are insufferably, insufferably competent in everything we do. We show up to everything, and we think we know everything. We think we are the best at everything. And that all the time has set me up for some really rude awakenings. Oftentimes it was in relationships. It was certainly in parenting. It was certainly in marriage. I say this all the time, that... Um, one of the, for our premarital couples, I have them read a couple of books and a couple of articles. And one of the books that I have them read is called Sacred Marriage uh, by Gary Thomas. And he writes that uh, you, when you marry someone or you're in, a, you're in a personal, you're in a deep, connected relationship with someone, uh, that relationship will not cause you to sin, but it absolutely will reveal your sin to you. <laughs> you always share that with, like, the naive, love-struck couples, and they always go, well, that doesn't sound very romantic, Pastor Kyle. And I'm like, I know, because it's not. <laughs> it straight up isn't. Uh, but this will happen to you. You will get into a deep, connected relationship with someone, and you'll begin to see, holy cow, like I'm a lot more uh, selfish than I thought I was. I'm a lot more possessive than I thought I was. I'm a lot more self-righteous than I thought I was. I've got a temper. You begin to see things about yourself that you didn't want to see. And you have two options. You have two options at that moment. You can either adapt and see the need for personal change and growth and evolution. Or you can dismiss it. But Paul warns us, the moment you dismiss that, the moment people confront you on your stuff and you just sort of like shove it off, what you do is you fall prey to this. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Therefore, be really careful that you do not allow sin to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. If people confront you on the parts of your life that you are, the parts of your personality where you're doing harm, intentionally or unintentionally, and you dismiss it, you just sort of shirk it off, what you're doing is you're running the risk of living a life where you further and further and further get controlled by all of your worst tendencies. So if you want to use the Enneagram poorly... Use it that way. Yeah, use it that way. Use it to dismiss and say, well, I'm just a seven. I'm just a two. I'm just a three. I don't have to listen to you. And then finally is this. Finally is this. Third and final one I want to share is this. The final bad, unhealthy, unfaithful, unhelpful way to use the Enneagram is to take the assessment, or if you've taken it already, and to treat the type, treat your number as a diagnosis rather than a default setting. It's to treat your type like a terminal diagnosis oh my gosh, so I'm this way forever and I can't do anything about it and I'll never be able to change? This is a bad way to use the Enneagram, right? 
You can do sixes. We, we did this earlier. Sixes, raise your hand, sixes. Okay. I want to um, celebrate sixes for a minute. And I specifically want to celebrate this six over here. My wife is a six. And the reason why is because I am convinced that sixes are the bravest of all of them. They're the bravest of all of them. Why? Because sixes are trained, they're hardwired to always see what could go wrong. And so if they're not careful, they could just decide to live the rest of their life and do nothing because of all that could go wrong. And about three years ago, my wife was feeling a call to go back to school, was feeling called to sort of find deeper meaning and purpose that God had called her to do, and it required her to go back to school. And she could have, she totally could have seen all of the 4,000 things that could have gone wrong. And she wrote them all down. She wrote them all down. We talked about them extensively. Uh, we still talk about some of them today, even after she's done. And all of those things could have stopped her. But she showed up anyway. I love that about sexes. They can see all the things that could go desperately, direly wrong, and they show up anyway. Healthy sexes, at least. And it's because they see this. They treat their type not as a diagnosis, but this is just where I start from. So I'm going to have to adapt. I'm going to have to shift in order to make sure it doesn't hold my life captive. For sixes in particular, it was memorizing this verse that God does not give us a spirit of fear and timidity. That voice that creeps into your life and says, well, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? That's not Jesus. I don't know who it is for you, but it ain't Jesus. Jesus' voice is the one that makes you feel empowered, makes you feel loved, and one that hones your focus in so you figure out who and why you were made. So, in summary, please do not, do not, you're not allowed, do not use the Enneagram in any of those ways. Because if you do, it will not be a tool, it'll be a weapon. Okay? Okay? Well, the flip side, so what are some ways in which it could be helpful? What are some ways in which it can help sort of help us tap into who God has made us and uh, how God and why God has made us the way that God made us? The first of which is this. A really healthy way, a really good and faithful way to use the Enneagram is to use it to expand your limited perspective. Use it to expand the possibility that maybe, just maybe, there are other ways to see the current problem you're facing. There are other ways to approach the current issue that you're facing in your life. This is why I always like, this is where I like to always pick on ones, okay? I always love to pick on ones. Why? Ones love order, and so as a result of that, they're super tempting to have, super tempted to have a very black and white worldview. It's only right option or a wrong option. There's no in-between bull. And so several years ago, I found myself on the receiving end of one of these uh, disagreements in Chipotle, of all places. In Chipotle, mine and myself having a nice burrito, and I go up, and Coca-Cola, they have done something really sweet, I feel like, for all of us, in that they have expanded our limited perspectives. And the way they do that is by giving us all different types of Coke. Have you seen this? There's Coke lime. There's Coke orange. There's Coke mango. There's vanilla Coke. Sweet Lord. Like, if they put queso in Coke, I might drink it. I swear to you, I might end up drinking it. I'll take it home. So I'm up there just, like, just testing all of them. And this man walks up to me and he goes, sir, 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 there is only one way, one right way to drink Coke. 
And so we get into this verbal altercation. We're sitting there talking like, sweet Lord, I can't believe this is happening to me. What has happened in my life that I'm here in Chipotle arguing about Coke flavors? And so we're arguing back and forth, arguing back and forth. And then one of my friends hears this and he walks up. He goes, I actually prefer Pepsi. And I was like, that's my out. That's my out. Y'all fight. You good. If you let it, if you let it. Tools like this, what they can do is they expand your perspective. They can expand your world. They can expand your faith. When I look at the Gospels, one of the things that I've, I'm convinced of, I think Peter might be a one. He might be a three, but he might be a one. And the reason why I believe that is because there's a really critical story in the book of Acts where Peter is one of those black and white thinkers. It's right or it's wrong. That's it. No gray. And it, you're either in or you're out. You're either a Jew, you're a part of this movement, or you're a Gentile. You're outside the movement. You're not allowed. And he has this really powerful vision in Acts chapter 10 where he sees this vision from God that compels him. He says, don't you dare. Don't you dare call things unclean. Don't you dare call things wrong that I have made right. And two minutes later, someone shows up who belongs to the wrong category, the wrong people group, someone he would not have been allowed to hang out with. He says this. He says, holy cow, holy cow. I now realize how true it is that God shows no favoritism. God is so much bigger than I thought. God's love is so much more expansive than I could ever imagine. He's using something to make sure that he expands his imagination to contain a God big enough, worthy of our worship and our devotion. So that's one way. One way to use the Enneagram in a really healthy, really faithful way is to use it to expand your perspective. Number two, the second way to use the Enneagram in a really healthy, faithful way is to use it as a tool to help you love other people on their terms. The Enneagram will help you. Tools like it will help you love other people on their terms. How many of you ever read uh, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman? Literally every Christian in the world. I'm convinced that there was a time when Christian, there were more Christians who read five love languages than the Bible itself. And so Gary Chapman put out this book, and he said there's five love languages, five. Five ways that we speak love and we like to receive love out in our relationships, in our friendships, in our marriages, what have you. And what he warns us about in the book is he says it's really critical that you understand your love language because if you're not aware of it, you will speak the language you like to hear paying zero attention if that's, the other, if that's the language the other person likes to hear. So there's acts of service, there's uh, physical touch, there's all of these uh, sort of uh, way, ways in which you can speak love for other people. And Marie and I, a couple years into marriage, we discovered this, and we, I make all of my premarital couples uh, do this, because I want people to understand how to love someone else on their terms. If you go the rest of your relationships or you go the rest of your friendships and you're constantly like, well, I love physical touch, and so I'm just going to run around and hug everybody all the darn time. And then the people who are not huggers are like, sweet Lord, that is not a love language. That's a hate language. Like, you must like me. You must dislike me. You must not want nothing to do with me. And so it's understanding. The Enneagram and tools like the Enneagram, what they do is they help unearth not what it is you want to speak to care for someone else, but what it is they need. They need. You want to truly love your neighbor? Don't just do something nice. Figure out enough about who they are 
to do the type of nice that they need. So loving others on their terms, it's key, it's critical. It's also Christian. Paul says this, right? He says this in the verse that almost every single one of you in this room have heard at numerous weddings, right? He says this, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It demands its own way. My vision's getting a little bad. It speaks only the language that it prefers to receive. It only does for other people what you like to get out of it. Oh, no, 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 no. If you want to truly be a person of love, it's not only doing something in service and in kindness and compassion to someone else, but on their terms. And thirdly and finally, where the Enneagram, this tool, this neutral tool, can be a gift to your life, to your faith, to your relationships is this. Use the Enneagram to learn how to love and accept the, part, accept the parts of yourself that other people have taught you to hate. What I do really love and appreciate about this tool is it helps you and I understand that there are parts of who you are, not only that you can't change, but you should not change. Please don't change. For you Enneagram 8s out there, I feel like Enneagram 8s get a bad rap. They get a bad rap, but I think we owe them a public apology. Why? Because Enneagram 8s, they're challengers, right? They're quick to call out the hypocrisy. And so as a result of that, people often say of eights, oh, sweet Lord, they're so much, and they're so honest, and they're just so much. Like, I don't know how else to say it. And to be fair, one of my really good friends, Annie, is an eight, and she's easily the loudest person I have ever met in my entire life. You know these people? Every room they walk into, they never speak lower than a volume nine out of ten. It actually doesn't matter the situation. You could be walking into a funeral with them. Where you guys want to sit? You guys, sorry, sorry, you're mourning. Oh, she's crying. Okay, do you guys want to sit in the front or the middle or the back? Guys, society just told us we needed to be quiet. We don't actually have to be quiet at funerals. It's fine. So four, all right, come on, come on. We owe eights an apology because while they might be a lot, we need them. There's no eights in the world, no challengers in the world. The world we're going to live in is going to be the most fake, superficial, unjust world you've ever seen. So no matter what type you are, no matter who you are, we need you. And we need the parts of you that other people have never appreciated, always criticized and scrutinized. We need all of you. But like even like the unhealthy parts of me, yep. Even the parts of me that are like unprocessed, yep. Even the parts that are raw and like I, I sometimes I show up and I'm still like I'm, I'm a really, I'm a big gift to a situation. And then the next moment I'm a huge liability to the situation because of my hardwiring. Like all of it, yes. Yes, 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 and yes. And I'll close here. The reason why I'm so passionate about this. The reason why I don't settle or compromise on this 
is because too many Christians out in the world have been sold a false gospel. You've been sold a false gospel that says this about God, that God loves you, but. God loves you, but. You better get real good, real fast at hiding the parts of you that are sinful and selfish and messed up. You better get real good, real fast at shielding and sort of making sure no one sees those sorts of things. You better get real good, real fast because God loves you, but he can't keep loving you unless you get rid of all of that at the door. And that ain't the gospel. That may be what we manipulated it into being, but that ain't the gospel. You see, friends, the true gospel, the message of Jesus, was not God loves you, but. It was God loves you and. God loves you as is, imperfect, jacked up, broken, a mixed cocktail of light and darkness, goodness and badness, Holiness and unholiness, God loves you as is, and God's going to spend the rest of your life loving the hell out of you, literally. This is the gospel. Not because Jesus is condoning the parts of me that are a liability to him and to his kingdom, but it's because Jesus knows that the only way you actually help someone transform is not by hating and shaming them into change. The only way is love. The only way that you truly make someone want to be different, want to be better, is you love and accept their freaking socks off. Friends, some way, somewhere, we got it twisted. We got it lost. The story of Christianity, the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus, it's not a question of if this God wants you. The only question on the table is do you want this God? Do you want this life that this God has for you? So many of you are going to die and show up in the life to come, and you're going to like, kind of like timidly approach and say, oh, like, did I get in? And you want to know what Jesus is going to say? Do you want to come in? That's it. That's who our God is. That's the story. And so the question is Lent is what do you want? Who do you want? Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.